no sense of decency, sir, at long last. Have you left no sense of decency? You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David, for our last episode of 2021. How are you doing, David? I'm doing pretty good. Been a pretty good year, Neil. How about you? Hard to believe this year has flown by a strange year indeed. Not quite as strange as 2020, but still a pretty strange year, David. A very strange year. I agree. It will be one for the history books, but for now... Let's go back to those history books and we'll do a history podcast. David, for the last time in 2021, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's January 1872. And on the docks of New York, a young man from Scotland has just strolled off the boat with a twinkle in his eye and a dream ready to seek his fortune. All right, David, we're off to a good start. He is out to seek his fortune. Who is this young man? That's a good question. The simple answer is we don't know. The name he's calling himself in New York is Gordon Gordon, sometimes Lord Gordon Gordon. That's certainly not his real name. We can confirm that much. There's several theories from historians about who precisely this Lord Gordon Gordon really was. But to me, a man who's chosen to leave his past behind shouldn't be bothered with minor trivialities like the fact that practically all of those theories agree that he must have been fleeing some form of criminal activity in Scotland in order to be adopting a new identity here in New York. David, if you're going to come up with a new fictional name for yourself... You'd think you could come up with two, like Gordon Gordon. That's the best he could do. He couldn't think of two separate names for himself. Right. But at the same time, it had a certain utility for Mr. Well, let's just call him Mr. Gordon for this podcast. In particular, it stood out as being distinctively Scottish and it really tied him into the appeal of the Highlands at the time. It made him seem as if he were associated with Scottish nobility because of the strong importance on family names that they tended to have. And of course, the fact that Gordon is a very well-known Scottish Highlands last name and family. So it helped to create the persona of a slightly down at his luck, but well-connected nobleman that was the persona that Mr. Gordon wanted his new acquaintances in New York to believe. So how could one go about making one's fortune in New York at this time? Well, I'm sure there were many options, but Mr. Gordon was heading straight to stock fraud, which seems to have been, if it's his first time committing stock fraud, it's certainly very impressive how much he seemed to know about the business of appearing to own stocks in 1872 when you had not actually legally acquired those stocks. And at a time before computers and international trade networks, the ability to sell what were actually simply scraps of paper that had been 
written on in an impressive and even hand and convince other people that they were legitimate stock certificates from Europe worth thousands of dollars was more feasible than it might seem to a modern audience. All right, Dave. So he's going to sell scraps of paper and call them stocks. What was the stock market like at this time? You mentioned that there were no computers, there were no central databases to check these things. Were there any other differences that people might need to know compared to today's stock market? That's a big question. Let me answer it by introducing another character who's about to become very important in this story. Mr. Jay Gold is one of the wealthiest men in America in 1872. In 1869, he tried to buy up enough gold, gold the metal, in order to raise the price of that commodity in order to make money on the stock market. And he actually individually succeeded in doing so which sounds crazy again today, but you have to remember the stock market was a lot smaller. There were a lot fewer people. It mostly was national. You had separate national stock markets and the sort of global trade, which we think of today, really hadn't taken off to the same extent. So yes, it was an era where the stock market was a little bit less regulated, a little bit more business done on handshakes and personal word of honor rather than verified trades, and especially a lot smaller than it is today. With a name like Jay Gold, he was born for that, David. He was born to try and buy up all the gold in the world to drive up the price of gold. What a great name for a stock market guy. So how long can Gordon Gordon get away with this selling these fake stocks, David? Is anyone going to notice? Well, his issue is he sells off a few quickly, raising some quick cash, but his need to avoid placing too many onto the market at once means that he's not getting caught per se, but he's certainly finding himself cash crunched. So he moves on to a second level of the swindle trying to con some money off of notable people in New York by creating the impression that he's a wealthy, well-connected Scottish nobleman who happens to be touring America and who's might be a valuable person to know, and using that to get them to let him stay at their homes, at hotels that they're paying for, and so on, letting him live the lifestyle that he wants to live without needing to keep going back to the same set of people who he's already convinced to buy stock once and who he knows it would be very suspicious if the same person kept on returning again and again to the same small group of stockbrokers claiming to have more and more stock from England that they can't cash out quickly that he wants to claim is valuable and sell to them. All right. So he's moved on from forging stocks, David. Now he's just sort of conning these rich people, convincing them that he's someone worth knowing and that they should pay for his lifestyle, which 
It's a pretty good little con, David, and a good way to make friends as well as maybe make some money. Right, but it has exactly the same problem as his original swindle. There's only so many wealthy people in New York looking to establish new potential business contacts in England or Scotland. And if you can't find people meeting that profile who are looking for someone to help them build contacts with, then the con doesn't work. There's no one who wants to pay for his lifestyle purely to hang out with him. The con is all about convincing people that he's worth money. So by the middle of the year, he's already starting to run out of convenient, wealthy, and deep-pocketed friends who are ready to just finance his lifestyle on spec. And that's when Lord Gordon Gordon meets Jay Gold. So I guess what you're saying, David, is that Gordon isn't that great of a friend. You'd only want to hang out with him if you thought you were going to make money off of him. I mean, I'm sure he's a charming person. It's more the pain for his lifestyle that people object to rather than the being in his presence portion of being his friend. Indeed, he has an entourage in New York very quickly after his arrival because just as he's trying to get other people to pay for his lifestyle, there's other people trying to convince him to pay for theirs. Fair enough. Fair enough, I guess. So Jay Gold meets Gordon Gordon. Is it a match made in heaven, David? Well, Jake Gold in 1872 has a problem. I told you that in 1869, he became infamous as a speculator driving up the price of gold. What I didn't mention was that that caused a financial crisis. Black Friday, 1869, the stock market crashed as the amount of money that he had spent buying up gold meant that transactions were interrupted and the bubble eventually popped. And the good news from Mr. Gold's perspective is that he didn't actually lose money, but he got sued by a wide variety of people, which meant that he didn't make as much money as he'd been planning on making. And so in the years afterwards, he was looking for a business that would let him make the money that he had not been able to make in the gold business. And in the 1870s, there was one exciting, relatively new, not new, but relatively new business that was where you would go and invest if you were a wealthy person looking to invest your money. Just as today, people look at the tech industry as the exciting industry to invest your money. In 1872, if you were looking for returns, you were looking to invest in railroads. All aboard, David, makes since the railroad was the technology of the day that was going to transform the world, so Jay Gold wants to get involved in the railroad business? Jay Gold wants to buy into the railroad business, and he doesn't do anything small. He wants to buy the Erie Railroad, the most profitable railroad in the United States of the day. Of course, there's a problem. The problem is that the people who own the Erie Railroad, quite reasonably, don't want to sell. They're getting paid dividends. The business is wildly profitable. Why would they want to sell to Jay Gold? And this is where Lord Gordon Gordon, meeting Mr. Gold for the first time, just happens to mention that some of his friends back in Scotland happen to own a few shares 
in the Erie Railroad and don't really know how well the business has been doing. They've gotten paid dividends, sure, but that's not a reliable way to assess these things. And one of the things he's been meaning to get around to on his stay in New York is to investigate the railroad and tell his friends whether they should sell those shares to somebody or keep them. And after he mentions that, suddenly Lord Gordon Gordon and Jay Gold are best buddies. So Jay Gold has a bunch of money and he wants to buy into the Erie Railroad. Gordon Gordon tells him he might just have the opportunity to do just that if he convinces his Scottish friends that they should sell their shares in that railroad. David, does Gordon actually have connections to people in Scotland who own part of the Erie Railroad? No. No, he doesn't. But by 1873, what he does have is $160,000. That's not adjusted for inflation. That is in 1873 dollars, $160,000. And stock in a variety of potentially valuable and growing American businesses, which is what Mr. Gold has put together as a reasonable offer to go to these non-existent Scottish friends and handed over to Lord Gordon Gordon on the plan being that Mr. Gordon will go back to Scotland and buy all of these non-existent Erie Railroad shares and hand them over to Gold. David, did Jay Gold do no background on this? He just uh, decided to hand over $160,000? So there's an interesting coincidence, and we'll never know how Mr. Gordon knew about this, but there actually were Scottish investors in the Erie Railroad. They didn't know Lord Gordon Gordon. They had no plans of selling. Like everyone else who owned the Erie Railroad, they loved the dividend and were perfectly happy with its business direction. But with no way of contacting Scotland quickly, when Mr. Gold found out that he'd met this apparently reputable young man who claimed to be Scottish nobility and to know everyone who was bought into the Erie Railroad in Scotland, and found out that there was a large portion of the Erie Railroad owned by Scottish investors, he thought he'd done actual due diligence, but he had not. He had been deceived. So this is a fortuitous turn for Gordon that there is in fact these Scottish investors, and that convinces Gold to give him $160,000, David, which Google tells me today would be worth about $3.7 million. So it's it's a good chunk of change. How is Gordon going to get caught? Well, I mentioned that as well as cash, gold also includes some stock options in various businesses that he owns as part of this package that he's intending to offer to buy Erie Railroad shares. Now, Mr. Gordon has claimed that he's going to take all of this to Scotland. But Mr. Gold hears only a few days later that these shares are suddenly being sold in New York. And when he starts investigating, he realizes that his friend, Mr. Gordon, is in the process of selling as many of these shares as he can in New York quickly and also buying tickets out of town. 
And unwilling to let him just do this, Mr. Gold goes to the police and reports that he's been defrauded. And the police arrest Lord Gordon Gordon and wait for trial. Well, he had an incredible string of luck there, David, but it seems to have run out for Gordon. He's in quite a bit of trouble now. He's in police custody, and he pretty much certainly committed this fraud. Is he going to have any hope here of avoiding jail or serious consequences? So now's the time when we need to take this podcast and discuss Canadian politics. Everyone's most exciting topic. I really didn't think Canadian politics was going to come into this, David. How do they fit in? Also, in the early 1870s, in this case, in 1871, the Canadian government created the Northwest Mounted Police, a police force you may have heard of. Right. They have a different name now, David, but still the red uniforms of the RCMP. That's right. Now, there were many reasons why the Northwest Mounted Police were formed, and I don't want to get into a full history of the force. But one of the motivations for why they were founded in 1871 specifically was driven by a specific case that occurred. An American group of whiskey traders crossed the border, ended up in a fight with some natives in Manitoba, and a native man was killed. And the fact that this sort of thing could occur, was occurring, press accounts called it a massacre, which is certainly not inaccurate. That was part of the motivation for the creation of this entire police force. So you won't be shocked to learn that the Northwest Mounted Police investigated these murders, and they actually tracked down the culprits who'd done it and organized a prosecution and extradited from the United States these American whiskey traders who were alleged to have committed murder. A Mountie always gets his man, David. But the modern histories of the RCMP frequently don't mention this entire story, and that's because of what happened next. You see, the Mountie's case was built on a witness who was one of the American whiskey traders who'd agreed to testify against the others in return for immunity from prosecution. That's very standard in legal cases. But the American consul in Canada announced that the American government would not abide by that deal. If he testified against the other whiskey traders in Canadian court, they would prosecute him for murder in the States and use his testimony in Canada against him. Obviously, he no longer wanted to testify. The entire case fell apart, and the American whiskey traders walked free. Okay, so maybe the Mounties don't always get their man. Depends on how you define getting. Anyway, the Mounties were not happy. The government of Manitoba? Not happy. The Canadian government? Also not happy. Also, technically, the extradition treaty in question? had some sections which discussed things like reciprocal immunity for witnesses for prosecution. Now, it's arguable whether the American consul had actually violated the extradition treaty or not, but the Canadian government were unhappy and announced that they would not 
extradite anyone who had not committed a crime specifically mentioned in the extradition treaty, which since the extradition treaty mentioned murder and no other crime by name, meant that anyone who hadn't committed murder could be pretty confident that they wouldn't be extradited if they managed to make Canada in 1873. This has been a fun little tangent, David. I hope it's going to tie back into this. Lord Gordon Gordon is brought to court for his first day in court. This is not the trial. It is, in point of fact, a bail hearing to determine if he's going to get bail or if he's going to be required to remain in jail until the trial. Lord Gordon Gordon claims that all this claim of fraud is a big misunderstanding. The Scottish investors are totally real and eager, eager to sell their Erie Railroad stock. Yes, he sold a little bit of stock in New York. He thought that was fine. He just thought the Scottish investors would prefer cash. Jay Gold is blowing everything up out of proportion. He names in court a bunch of names of the investors in Scotland who he's got, who have Erie Railroad stock. The court think that's great, that he's willing to do this and say that they're going to check all these names, obviously. But while they do, he'll be allowed out on bail since he certainly shouldn't be held in a jail cell when there's not even evidence a crime has been committed yet. And then they set bail. It's set fairly high. But Mr. Gordon has friends and people who believe that he's about to be worth a lot of money if he wins this case. And so bail gets paid by a variety of friends of Lord Gordon Gordon. Now, Neil, you're never going to guess what happens immediately after Mr. Gordon gets freed on bail in New York. Okay, so he's got his bail now. He's out of jail at least for as long as it takes for them to get this trial put together. David, I'm going to guess that he's read the news that Canada won't extradite anyone to the U.S. unless they've committed murder. And I'm going to guess that he's going straight for the Canadian border. Well, he does buy a train ticket to Toronto. And then he hops on that train, reaches Toronto, and just starts heading west while remaining firmly within the boundaries of Canada. So I'd say your guess is... Pretty spot on. Was it an Erie Railroad train? It was not, unfortunately. Oh, that would have been such a nice tie into all of this. David, it's a quick escape for Gordon Gordon. Did he get to take all the cash with him? Is he now a wealthy man in the Canadian West? Well, he didn't get to take all of the cash with him. Quite reasonably, a large amount of it had been held by the court. But of course, he had to live in New York, which has never been cheap, so the court did allow him to have a fairly significant sum of cash out of the disputed money, which was being held by the American legal system pending the ending of the case, and you'll not be shocked to learn that every dime he was allowed to have, he kept with him as he headed north and then west to Winnipeg. Now, David, this seems like a bit of a problem that Canada's not going to send anyone but murderers to the U.S. You'd think every criminal south of the border would be heading to Canada. Is this political dispute going to get resolved anytime soon? Well, in Ontario, the Canadian government walks it back from we won't extradite anyone but murderers to we will let 
local prosecutors determine who gets extradited. And then local prosecutors cut deals with prosecutors on the other side of the American border. And the treaty starts working pretty much the way it usually does. The same goes for a bunch of other provinces, well, all across the country. And in other provinces, Quebec, Nova Scotia, you get prosecutors being very reasonable. In Manitoba, however, even though the local prosecutors are now allowed to decide who they extradite to the U.S., they're still bitter about the original case. These are the prosecutors who were, in point of fact, screwed over by the American consul when this whole thing started blowing up. And so they're taking a much stricter line on the whole who should get extradited. That's probably not unrelated to the fact that Mr. Gordon has headed to Winnipeg as quickly as possible. I suspect he got wind of the fact that this would be the Canadian government's compromise solution and chose to stay somewhere where the prosecutors would be less likely to view extradition as a good thing. So is that it for Gordon Gordon, David? Does he get to live out the rest of his life in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which... Well, it's certainly not New York, but at least he's not in a jail cell. That is not it for Mr. Gordon. Mr. Gold has friends. That's not really shocking. He's a wealthy man. Some of Mr. Gold's friends are in politics. Some of his friends in politics are in portions of the uh, United States that are not New York. For example... One of his friends in politics lives in Minnesota and is a Minnesotan state representative in the Minnesota State House of Representatives. His name is Lauren Fletcher. And when he receives a bunch of telegrams from Jay Gold complaining about how ridiculous all of this is, he decides that the solution to this problem is to hire a pair of his friends, also Minnesotan politicians, cross the border to Winnipeg, kidnap Mr. Gordon, and then head back to the United States and sort of handle a private extradition of a sort. Extraordinary rendition, David. This is quite a bold plan from the Americans. It's really an infringement on Canadian sovereignty here. Are a few politicians able to pull this off? Like, I mean, I've seen Batman do this in the movies, but politicians? No, they're not. They actually do kidnap Gordon Gordon briefly, but they're not subtle at all. And apparently most of the town of Winnipeg knows what's happening. Well, it's happening. And the Northwest Mounted Police arrest Mr. Fletcher and his compatriots, let Gordon Gordon go since he's not accused of a crime, and suddenly Lauren Fletcher, a Minnesota state representative and future congressman, by the way, is now on trial in Canada for kidnapping, which in turn creates a political crisis in Minnesota. The state governor calls up the state militia, which creates a political crisis in Washington, D.C., where they're trying to make sure that the governor of Minnesota will not invade Canada on his own. Meanwhile, the Canadians are not thrilled at any of this. And, of course, there has to be a trial for these three alleged kidnappers. Well, that did not go well, David. Not well at all. So 
all of a sudden Minnesota is on the brink of war and three politicians are on trial in Winnipeg. It seems like a fairly cut and dried case, David. They were trying to kidnap a man. It's an interesting case to be sure. They try and argue citizens arrest, which would be more plausible if they could come up with a Canadian crime, but I digress. And eventually a deal is arranged. The men are found guilty of kidnapping, but allowed to serve their sentences in the United States. None of them get very long jail sentences, by the way. Mr. Gold comes up with an alternative way of handling the Gordon Gordon situation, which is much more effective than having his random politician friend in Manitoba attempt a kidnapping. And the entire thing fades into the annals of history with a new extradition treaty between the U.S. and Canada. How does Gold figure out to get his hands on Gordon Gordon? Well, he realizes that what he really wants is for Gordon Gordon to be in jail. And if he can't extradite him to the U.S. to be charged with fraud related to the fraud against Mr. Gold, that doesn't really matter. He hires a Canadian lawyer to determine if they can find any crime whatsoever that Mr. Gordon could be charged with in Canada under Canadian law. Now, Canada at the time was a part of the British Empire, which means that activities involving Scotland and crimes committed in Scotland could be charged in Canada, which in turn means that the ties to misrepresentation of the investors in Scotland, if those investors wanted to bring a case in Canada, they could. One of them got paid by Mr. Gold, and Mr. Gordon ends up being found guilty of stock fraud after all of this in a Canadian court on Canadian charges. He almost got away with it if it weren't for those meddling Scots, David. And so this whole convoluted story that started with a broke man on a pier in New York City worked his way up to the top through fraud and deception, managed to steal a whole bunch of money in a railway scam, and then run to Canada to take advantage of the political winds of the time, ends with him in jail and Canada going back to a regular extradition treaty with the United States. That about sums it up, Neil. Thanks for telling us this story, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And if you enjoyed it, make sure you tell your friends about it. David, there's a lot of influencers in our audience. You know that? I did not know that. Lots and lots of influencers. So make sure, put it on your social media. You can tag us at When Art Thou. We appreciate your influence in helping your friends to find us if they enjoy history podcasts as much as you do. David, we always like to end with something fun. So how about a quiz? Sounds good to me. We've done a bunch of pop culture quizzes, David. And speaking of social media, you can find our past pop culture quizzes on our Instagram page. If you go to at when art thou along the top, there's some highlights and you can click on the one for pop culture quizzes and it'll show you all of the episodes that have a pop culture quiz at the end. David, today's pop culture, we're going to go with Disney and Disney princesses. Disney princesses. All right, bring it on. All right, our first question is about Pocahontas. Did she marry John Smith, as happens in the movie? Hmm, I know that the movie is based on John Smith's account of somewhat arguably true events, but I don't actually know much more about the actual history behind Disney's Pocahontas. 
but I'll guess that yes, at a time when it was more acceptable than it would become in the 1800s for relationships between Native Americans and Europeans to exist, I think it's possible, so I'll guess yes. You're close, David. The actual answer is no. She didn't actually marry John Smith. However, she did marry a foreign man. She married John Rolfe. And that marriage was the first known marriage between a European and a Native American. David, in the Disney movie Frozen, one of the most popular recent Disney films, the Prince Hans uses a sword. Is that typical for the era? Right. My issue with this question is I'm honestly not sure what era Frozen is set in. It has elements of the 1700s and the gunpowder sort of era, but we certainly don't see any evidence of gunpowder existing within the film. It's sort of a historical mishmash of Northern European influences. But nonetheless, swords were a pretty typical weapon across a long period of time in Northern Europe. So I'll guess yes. Based on my extensive research, David, its period is supposed to be around the 1830s. And by then, people were using guns as their main offensive weapons. So presumably, that's what Hans would have used, although I think that might have ended the movie a little bit quicker. Another classic Disney movie, David, Aladdin is set around the 4th century in the Arabic world, and Princess Jasmine wears a revealing outfit. Is that accurate or not? Huh, there's another interesting question. Certainly, we shouldn't just read back modern Arabic attitudes onto the past since Arabs, like everyone else, have had very different historical attitudes at different times. Uh, But at the same time, for a princess, Jasmine's outfit always struck me as being a little bit less regal than I would expect. I'm not an expert, but I'm going to guess that no, that's not really typical of the time. You're right, David. It was a much more conservative time in Arabic countries around the 4th to 7th centuries, so women would wear much more conservative outfits. Speaking of outfits, how about in Disney's Brave, the outfits that Princess Merida wears, are they accurate to the time period in Scotland? Huh, another good question. Again, I don't know a lot about historical fashion, and Scotland in particular with the tartans uh, can be very particular about what was and wasn't accurate at a given time and era. Disney's typically not that concerned with historical accuracy, so I'm going to guess no. Well, David, Jasmine's outfits might not have been accurate, but Princess Merida's were designed to be the type of elegant dress that someone of a higher standing would wear at that time in Scotland. Last question for you, David. Let's go back to Disney's first princess, Snow White, is she based on a real person? Snow White. (laughs) I mean, I've always associated Snow White as a fairy tale with a very exaggerated and unrealistic aspect. So I'm going to guess no, that she's based on a mythic archetype rather than a real person. Well, David, this one is a little bit controversial, so you can say you're right. But there was a girl by the name of Margaret von Waldeck who was a pale, black-haired girl known for being gorgeous. Her mother had died, and she had a stepmother, perhaps a wicked stepmother, and eventually Margaret fell ill. She appeared to have tremors, and she died with many suspecting poisoning 
perhaps a poison apple. And here's the last interesting piece. Von Waldeck's father employed children in mines. This was a time before child labor laws, and the children were often stunted in growth, making them appear dwarven. In fact, they were often referred to as poor dwarves. So you can be the judge on that one. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. 